Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's he's earned kind of the guru title in a lot of circles, so I'm excited to pick his brain. So today's guest is currently an assistant coach with the McMaster's Women's Program. He's also worked at MAC with the Men's Program. He's been an assistant coach with the Youth Women's National Team. He's been the head coach of Niagara College, and he's worked with Team Ontario, both with the HBC program, with the Team Ontario program at Canada Cups, and also at Canada Games. Please welcome to the show, Nathan Jansen. Nathan, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Appreciate being here. Thanks for the invite. So one episode I would definitely recommend people go back and listen is from the first chair. I thought you had a great episode with Frank and T and, and really dove into some stats. So uh, instead of overlapping with them a little bit, I was hoping we could do our own thing. But I did want to give you a spotlight for that one right off the bat that they should go back and listen to that one. But one thing I want to settle from the start for us is that they kind of take credits with you being a Mavs guy. And then a lot of people know you as a Mac guy, but I think at the end of the day, you were a Kitchener guy growing up. So what was your relationship with sport and what kind of made you fall in love with volleyball? And, you know, some people might even know you as a baseball guy because you played a year at, at Mac, I believe. Right. So what was it like growing up and how did you fall in love with, with volleyball and sport in general? Oh my goodness. Wow. You've done your homework, Josh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Kitchener, Waterloo. I went to Forest Heights, which I think is definitely my connection to volleyball. At the time, it was a powerhouse, um, especially in, in, in boys' volleyball, but in girls' volleyball, when uh, when Pavin moved over to the girls' side, it became a powerhouse there, too. Um, like, my sister played with Sarah Pavin for five years of her high school career and won, like, three offset titles. So I think volleyball kind of was, was a part of my life growing up. My mom played, like, rec, and I remember being in the gym with her all the time. Um, I had no idea what high-level volleyball looked like, though. I think I played one or two club years total, and I like rode the bench for both of them. Um, but I, I played for some pretty good coaches. So like Pavin was around, and, and Morton was was one of, was my coach for a couple years, and like so those guys definitely influenced my my upbringing in terms of volleyball and loving it. Um, yeah, and, and it's funny like when I went to Mac because I, I was a McMaster student as well. I remember trying out for the volleyball team, and at the time, the men's team was was not great. I think they won like two games the year before, and I I, I tried out, and I, I think I went to one or two tryouts and said, you know what, I'm I'm not good enough to do this, and I and I walked away. Like one, actually, one of my big regrets in life, maybe that I didn't like put way more energy in. I think I probably could have could have stayed in the game a lot longer than I did, but yeah, it just kind of worked out that I went to Mac and became a full time student. I didn't start playing baseball till a couple years later. Um, I was always a baseball player on the side as well. When I was really young, I played some pretty high-level baseball. I always had a, a decent arm. And um, I kind of got back into baseball when volleyball went out of my life. And, and suddenly I was playing for the MAC baseball team just for a year. I was, again, I was like 
a redshirt player pretty much. I was a I was a I don't know I, I don't, like I was a batting practice pitcher essentially <laughs> for the baseball team. So I don't want to take too much credit for being on that team. Like there were guys on that team that were really really good, and I was just around to help out as much as I could. Um, yeah, I, I would never say that I was a very great athlete, but one of the skills that I've always had is I could like take a look at the tactics of a game and understand them really well. Um, I could always think the games that I was playing and try to find ways to use that to my advantage. Um, even when I was in high school sitting on the bench for volleyball games, I remember having a clipboard in my hand and sitting beside the head coach and like basically being an assistant while, while on the bench. Um, that was definitely one of my strengths, and I think I've really taken that strength and, and transferred it into my, into my coaching career. Yeah, it's really cool just to hear that coaches had a big influence on you that, yeah, like you and I were probably never going to play for the national team, but we still love the sport and wanted to be involved. And it's cool that you've made a living in a sport that, you know, you didn't identify as being a top tier athlete in, but you've definitely made an influence on the sport. Now, uh, I do need you to confirm or deny a rumor. When you were watching games at Mac, were you taking stats in the stands? <laughs> that is true. Um I think that started around my third. I was at Mac for five years as a student, and then and then for one year after that, I worked in in a lab, actually in a chemistry lab. So I was around Mac for six years, like basically through my undergrad. And I think around my third or fourth year, I was I was going to games, sitting in like the far corner of the bridge by myself, where I could get like an endline view almost. And uh, there weren't a lot of people in the crowd at that time. And I was just taking stats. I think that was like Dave Preston's first or second year with the team and I, I would have a clipboard and I was just trying to figure out rotations and tendencies and, and what was actually happening in the game. A year later, I actually got hired by the department to, to do like whatever the OUA stats and start and, and, and sit at the actual score table and, and be a little more formal capacity. But again, I was just taking like kill numbers and, and dig numbers. But yeah, I, I, I've, I've always been a nerd. I think that's the easy <laughs> way to say that. Like I've always been a super nerd and, and that started well before I was coaching full time. Yeah, it's so cool to hear that because I think other sports that do media really well, like I've never played football, but watching, you know, some of the commentators can break down a game and you start to realize like things tactically going on where I find in volleyball that's really tough to do. And it's neat that you were kind of leading your own stats. So you, you were just trying to keep your brain busy and understand tactics or was there anything that like your own stats spotted out or was there anything that was like an aha moment a few years later when you were working with Dave about some things maybe that you look back and it was obvious after having him explain it because sometimes just being a volleyball fan, you got to figure it out on your own, right? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I ever, like, honestly, I knew nothing back then. I think I was just trying to figure out where players were going at that level. Like, if you told me that a starting rotation, and this is true, like, if you told me when I was 21 years old and, and being a nerd at volleyball games, if you told me that, that the right rotation was center and then left side, then middle, then opposite, I would have been like, really? Okay. Like, I didn't know that. Like, that was my level of knowledge of the game. Like, I played at Forsyth, but I never really understood, the, even the, even at what, from what I know now, like, the simple stuff, you know? So, at that point, I was just trying to figure, okay, where's the center setting? Where are the guys going? Why are they going there? Um, it was pretty, it was pretty basic, but that's, that's where I started, right? Like we all have to start somewhere. And I think it's so cool now talking to like club coaches who are just getting into it or like parents who have a kid who's just starting volleyball. I love having those conversations because that's where I started. Like I didn't, I was never on the court for that stuff. I had to learn it by watching. So it's definitely, and then when I met Dave years later, like it, that was 
a whole nother mind blowing experience, really, because he he thinks the game in a way that I didn't even understand at that point. But yeah, when I first started doing that, it was really, really at an elementary level, and I think that's where that's where you have to start. I, I don't want to. I'm never going to badmouth that, or I don't regret that at all. Like I think that's the important that's the important starting point for so many coaches. Nice, nice. And when did you get? Uh your first chance to really apply that. Is that where I, I do owe Frank and the Mavs organization a little bit of credit is you, you cut your teeth as a coach with that club? Uh, yes, for sure. The Mavs played a big role in that. If I, I would be, I think I'd be remiss not to talk about some of my coaching experiences in Toronto. Cause I started, I, I went to teacher's college at, at U of T and then I got a job teaching full time right out of right out of teachers college. So I for two years I was coaching full time at a, at a tiny little school called Bloor Collegiate, and uh, I started high school coaching there. I was coaching volleyball. I had a really really amazing two years coaching the volleyball team there. We went to Austin for a year. We had no club players. It was just an amazing coaching experience for me, and uh, so I started there. And and when my when my wife and I moved to Ottawa. Um, a couple of people that I had met in the TDSB introduced me to Kerry McLean, and uh, and Kerry and Kerry was the first one that said, "Hey, you might you might be really good at this. Like, you want an opportunity?" So I just I kind of jumped with the Mavs when we moved to Ottawa for a couple of years, and then that was when things started to really take off much more quickly than I had ever dreamed that they would. Um, I started like people were studying coaching. I had never studied coaching before, and like how to how to get the most out of your players and studying learning and. And it was a whole different level meeting Frank St. Denis and, and John Nguyen and John Spack and, and Marin Hansen. Like all those people like were huge influences in my life. Jeremy Hene, another guy that like still blows my mind thinking about the conversations we had back in like the late 2000s. And if you had to recall that time in your, in your career and all your learning, because you're obviously passionate and you know not many people are taking their own stats at a university game. Were you open to these conversations? Like, did you have certain things in your mind that you thought were already true? Like, uh, you're obviously a lifelong learner now, but I, I look back at my own coaching career and I thought I knew way more than I actually did. And I'm wondering, are you closer to that spectrum or were you just open to any conversation trying to take as much as you could from, from anybody who would have a conversation? <laughs> Josh, you're hilarious because I think I'm in the same boat as you. Like, I thought <laughs> I knew everything. I thought I knew so much more than I did at the time. And I think all coaches do. Like, you know what you know, right? And you don't know what you don't know. So it, I definitely thought that I knew everything. And it was those conversations, like watching them um, coach in, in practice, like watching them do it every day, watching them. Like even like I remember watching practices with the Mavs with other teams and like watching Frank with his like 14U team at the time. And I was I was blown away by the level of organization and, and how he was incorporating stats into his practice and, and how we were speaking to athletes. Like it was really, I thought I knew everything. And then I saw people doing it way, way better than I ever dreamed you could. And I'm like, okay, like I have to get better. So I've, I think I've definitely thought I knew everything, but I've always been open to, to getting better, right? Like one of the things that I love is winning. And when I'm watching coaches coach in a way where they have a higher chance of winning, like I'm going to take that information. I'm not going to be so stubborn that, that, I'm, I'm going to lose doing something that, I, that I'm comfortable with. So if it, if it gets me to a place where I can be a better coach and have a higher chance of winning and can make a bigger impact on the athletes that I'm working with, I'm, I'm happy to change. But if it's something that I firmly believe in and that, I'm, that I think is right and I've already done the studies myself, then yeah, I'm going to be a little stubborn on that. But for me, to, for me to say I know everything now even would be 
far from the truth. And from, from back then, I thought I did know everything, and I knew very little. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And then just to fast forward a little bit, you, you get the gig at Mac, and I think uh, Frank and T covered this in your episode there, that you're learning data volley. It's essentially a new language with the speed. You have to be like rating each skill and which player did it and trying to keep up with it. To, I, I think I, I heard that it took you a year to essentially learn that, that they had somebody doing data volley and you were essentially practicing live, right? They didn't even use your stats. But I'm curious with Coach Preston, and he's been a guest on our show, and I, I think he's great as far as planning goes and periodization. Did he really pull you aside and explain the value of the stats and why he wanted it and, like, the big picture of how it fit into his plan? Because that guy leaves no stone, stone unturned, and he's rarely prepared, and I think stats-driven and data-driven is a big part of his coaching philosophy. So with you being a, a part of his squad, was that really explained to you early on, or were you honestly just trying to learn data volley because it takes so much to become an expert at that? Yeah, the first year I didn't, again, I, I knew nothing. So I was just trying to keep up. Dan Russell was sitting beside me, and, and he was an expert. And so I was just trying to keep up with him. I, I didn't talk to Dave all that much that year. I was still full-time teaching. I was showing up to games once a week, sitting beside Dan, and like trying to figure out as much as I could about the program. It wasn't until I started doing it on my own, and, and Dave started relying on me, that it went to another level of conversations and how important those statistics were to the way that he coaches. Dave is a genius planner and, and Dave is a genius at using those stats and tactics in a way that he can develop players. So like it was really, really fascinating and, and, and an incredible experience for me to start using my like stats that I was producing and, and how Dave used them, not just in matches, but in his training and his development and making plans for athletes from year one to year five. Um, again, it was another it was another level up for me in terms of of how to coach at a really really high level. Now, I'm always curious, and I love a good story about how action can be taken from stats. And I'm curious if you were on the squad, they would have played Western, and, and Garrett May heard through the grapevine years after this that you guys had scouted him so much that they knew if he received first ball when he was in the front row, the setter didn't tend to go back to him. So even though Garrett was one of the best passers in the league you could cut down his offensive value just by serving him. And I'm curious, were you part of the, the mad scientist who found this stat and was like convincing Dave that we're going to serve the best player and it's going to be better for our blocking lineup? Or was that a little before your time at Mac? That was the year, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the year that I was just learning data volley. I think that was the 2010-2011 season. I think Garrett would have been a, a rookie in that year. I think so, yeah. Um, so that, but that was, that definitely happened. And I think the game where that happened was where we played Western in the final, in the OUA final in 2011. Um, and we did serve Garrett. I wasn't part of the, I wasn't the genius that, that came up with that plan. That was, I think that was all Dave. But, but again, Dave's doing his homework, right? So like when, when Dave looks at a data volley package, he's not just looking for superficial like kill numbers. He's looking for big tendencies that, that he can rely on to make a great tactical plan. And, um, that for sure that year it was true that they rarely rarely set Garrett after after he passed. So we were fine with with him passing dimes all day long. There's a little shout out for you. Like it was <laughs> it was absolutely okay for us because we knew as a from a blocking and defense perspective that we had cut down an option. And I'm curious, you might not have to name names, like I bring up the Garrett one because he's a good friend of the show and we, he told me this story, so I'm curious, is there any other actionable things that you can really take from stats? Because I think it's so lost to get into it and some of it just isn't that valuable anymore because it's just so accessible or it might be artificial about 
you know, so-and-so's kill percentage, but I'm curious, what are some actionable things that maybe you would lean over and tell Tim in the middle of a game that this is something that's happening or it might match your game plan? Like, what are the scenarios that if a coach is going to go to all this work of collecting data that you can create, you know, a dependency or a tactical advantage from? Oh my goodness, there's so many. <laughs> I'll, I'll, give a good, I'll give another good example, actually. So, it was Canada Games 2017. Uh, Ian Evett, Matt Harris, and me are sitting in like our little like cubby hole in the cafeteria that we had uh, that we had carved out for ourselves, where we did all of our game planning for every single match. And uh, we're going again. We're going to the final of Canada Games. We haven't won in whatever 24 years, and everyone knows it. And so we're all for sure as a coaching staff, like we're feeling the pressure. And we're watching Alberta, and we're trying to figure out how we're going to beat this team. Um, they're really, really great. And they have tons of great players. All of them are new sport now and, and killing it. So it was um, it was definitely a tense game planning moment, and we didn't really have a serving strategy yet that we that we loved. And we're and we're watching film, like we're watching every single rotation, we're watching every single passer, we're watching like who they set when the ball is passed from certain positions, like one six versus five. Like we're trying to find tendencies. So we spent maybe an hour and a half just like discussing, trying to find what our serving strategy was going to be in that match and what it would give us. And in the end, it was Ian who noticed that they all those guys struggled in position one. So in the end, I, I go into data poly. I, I pull up all their passers from position one and what they look like. And then we start looking and we're like, okay, like this actually might be a viable solution for us. So we, so we said, okay, we're going to serve position one. Well, what does that do for their offense? When they're passing from position one, are they going to set more right side? Are they going to set more left side? What does that look? What does that look like? I'm going to get going here. I'm talking really fast. I apologize. <laughs> what does that look like when the when the setter's backhand versus when the setter's front hands? What does that look like when certain middles are in the front court versus the back court? Because one of their middles might only run 31, and the other middle might only run 51. Okay, so how is this going to influence our blocking strategy based on this one serving strategy? And I think those kind of trickle-down effects, coaches don't think about often, okay, well, they're bad passers in position one. So that's a great starting point for a, for a game plan. But what is that going to do for the game plan throughout the rest of, your, the, rest of the game? What are the trickle-down effects? So in that game, their right side was really, really excellent. So we were like, okay, if we're going to serve position one, that probably means they're going to set a little more right side, though that tendency generally holds true. And so we're like, all right, we better have a good blocking strategy versus our right side because we're almost forcing the setter to set that position a little bit more by serving behind him a ton. So like that, just that one example, right, where you can, you're using stats at multiple layers of a game plan, serving strategy, blocking strategy, offensive strategy. On the other end of the ball, like with Canada Games, I was the setter coach. So I would sit down with our setters before every match and, and try and decide, okay, like, what are their blockers doing in every single rotation? Are they are they committing? Are they reading? Like, what is our what is our offensive strategy going to look like versus their versus their blockers? And and at certain times, I didn't do this with Canada Games, but at certain times, I've tracked like how often does a certain middle commit? How often does a certain middle read? Um, what does a middle do versus a thirty-one? Are they following it? Are they staying in the middle? Like, what what is a middle tendency in terms of their statistics? The issue with this, Josh, is it takes a lot of data points for that data to be reliable. Um, I don't like living in small sample sizes. 
So, for example, with at Canada Games, like we didn't have enough data points on these guys to really start making hard decisions. And so I'll bring this back around to like how we make in-game decisions. One of the free, one of the things that we were monitoring during that Canada Games during the, during the final against Alberta was we were trying to figure out okay, so we're going to serve position one. We don't think they're very strong there. Over the the course of the first couple sets, we want to know if that was true. Right, so one of the things that we're tracking every single time out as a coaching staff, we're like, are we still serving position one? Is that working? Um, so I, I really think the stats are important when you're making a game plan. Like that's the most important part. You get enough data points, you start making some decisions based on those data points, and then the big thing during a match is to a let your players play because I don't want them hung up on numbers. But more importantly for us as a staff is like, okay, is are the assumptions that we made true? Is our game plan holding, or do we need to make adjustments? This is this is awesome. I'm glad uh, I got you on the show, and I feel like this is we might go over time. I'm warning you right now; we might go over That's, time. This is all good I stuff. Got some time. It's all good. <laughs> now, I'm curious where you feel on like where this lands in the art of coaching, because I feel like there's been times as a scout I've I've discovered things, but then I realized that the team wasn't prepared to do this. Like one of the quick stories when I first got the beach gig, one of our women's teams was overseas, so I'm communicating and saying, okay, their blocker is a standing server and she likes to serve cross court. We need to fire up our two ball, any like speed play you have, anything to put a time stress on the blocker. And they messaged me back being like, we haven't worked on any of that. Like we're not confident in doing that. And I just was so gutted as a coach being like, we have a tactical advantage and we didn't have like the, the force shadowing to build this into our training plan so have you ever had a similar experience where you discovered something as a scout where you're like shoot we haven't trained this or or where do you find as a coach the art of knowing that there's just some volleyball truths or situations that you need to develop even though you might not need them at, at this saturday's tournament you're going to need them by provincials maybe yeah that's to me that's where like coaching becomes so important and again i'll come back to dave preston like he is a master at watching a team like Western or Queens play and then he knows he has five days to prepare for that match and getting his team ready for the tactics that he expects to use for that match. So whether it's going to be commit blocking or serving cross court to position one or, or, or running a, a slightly faster offense to the left, whatever it is, like Dave is a master at making sure the guys are ready and feeling confident that they can do, that they can execute that tactic for that match. And yeah, I've definitely been in situations where I, I wanted to like make an adjustment and I'll give a perfect example. Like we've all been in a situation where like we have a small setter and the opponent is running like left side over top of our setter and we just can't stop that block. We can't stop that attacker with our setter blocking. And, and what we all want to do is put our setter into position four. Um, I often call that firing up. And, and that way, it's an easy say, oh, now I have my best blocker. I have my left side blocker versus their best attacker, and we have a great matchup. But what people often don't think about is, like, the trickle, again, the trickle-down effect of that tactic. So, like, has your team ever trained that before? Do you have a transition offense that can run out of that situation? Do players know where they're going to go and where they're going to attack? And does, does the setter feel confident making that move where they're, they're coming kind of backwards from position four and setting an offense from there? So, like, all those trickle-down effects, I think, are really important. And, and great coaches are really good at, at training those tactics before you get into a game situation. And, like, Josh, I've been there with you where, like, I want to do something and I can't, I can't do it. And every time I've ever tried, except for, like, some very, very special players who, like, just have volleyball IQs off the, off the charts. But, like, with, with 
than ninety nine percent of volleyball players. If you if you're doing something in a match that they've never done before, man, it's it's not going to work because it just it, it can drop the, the first time it, it doesn't work. Their confidence just plummets. So yeah, I think that's where aligning your tactics and your stats with your actual player development is a huge part of coaching. And like doing stats without player development to match that doesn't make sense. And I love how you brought up the, the sample size. And I'm curious, does this ever change based on the level? Like would the national team need more data than a university team or could a club team because data isn't accessible as much? Could you shorten that? Like I love how you're confirming in game if something's going to work, but I'm curious, how do you manage the sample size? Because as a club coach, I might only have the camera set up on my court. So therefore I only get to watch your team when we play each other versus university. You kind of share the whole season or internationally, you might have years of, of data on that athlete and you can see them progress. Right. So is there a hard and fast number that you're kind of like, I need, you know, four matches on a team before I have an idea or how do you manage sample sizes at the different levels you've coached? such a cool question i've done I'm, i hate to say the words i've done a study but like i've actually put together a simulation on on how reliable data is depending on depending on the sample size um this this is done in baseball all the time like you've probably heard maybe you've heard like um like era is not a stable number not a stable statistic in season until like a pitcher has pitched like 100 innings whereas walk rate is stable after like 20 innings. So when you're looking at ERA versus walk rate in baseball, walk rate stabilizes much faster than ERA does. So if I'm going to judge a pitcher's performance, I'm going to look at walk rate, not ERA. So I've done the same thing in, in, in volleyball. And for most of the stats that we're looking at, like kill efficiency, um, ace rate, for most of the stats that I've looked at anyways, the, the, the magic number that I like to use is 100. Um, I want 100 data points on a certain statistic before I start trusting that that number is going to be true. So if I'm looking at passing, like like a passing rating of like out of three or out of four, so if a, if a player is like a 2.4 passer, I'm not going to trust that number until I'm around 100 passes. Here's the rub, though. This is the hard part about this. And I think at the, at the national team level, this is much easier to deal with. When I'm at the national team level, I'm looking at 100 passes most players at that level are not really improving that much anymore or the improvements are happening in like the smallest of increments, right? Like they're not getting a whole lot better day to day or week to week. Those players are, are at the very top of their game and, the, and they have to work like years to make the, the tiniest of adjustments now. Whereas if I took a player in like 15U, he or she could make huge changes within like a week or two. Like if I take a, an athletic player in a 15U gym and say, hey, try this, they can make big adjustments in their game in like a week. So suddenly whatever their passing number was doesn't apply anymore, right? So at the university level, those, if I take 100 passes from a player who plays on, on, on McMaster, well, if I work with her for four weeks on making an adjustment to her game, that passing number that she was doesn't apply anymore. So in terms of game planning, when I'm looking at a player, like if I'm watching Queens play and we're playing Queens this week, if I'm watching, if I'm, if I'm taking stats, let's say a complex scenario, like we're playing Queens, it's February, I have data from the last four months, including numbers from like October, November. Those October, November numbers may not apply anymore 
because the player's been working hard, the coaches have been working with him or her, and now and now the number that they were doesn't apply. So I'm always stuck on sample sizes like this because the number's changing. I can't rely on it 100%. So in the end, like, yeah, I might be serving player number five, but and I think that she's a 2.1 passer, but in fact, she's actually, her true talent level is 2.3 passer, and that's not what I was expecting. So the small sample size can be a real tricky, a, a, fickle, a fickle friend, because you just never know how, how, how much adjust, how, what the adjustments have been from the player that you're talking about. I hope, I hope that makes sense. You know, Josh, like, does that, oh, yeah, what I'm saying makes sense? Definitely. And I'm also just curious to add another layer to that. Like, how does the, the human reaction apply to some of this data? Like, to use your example, if we're going to serve to one, well, in most systems, if they're playing a five one, well, the libero is going to be in one, three of the rotations, right? Or yep. to use a beach example, if we're going to serve someone on their right shoulder the whole game, if I serve somebody over their right shoulder 40 times a match, at the end, they're probably going to be pretty confident in it because they know what's happening, right? So even yeah. though it is a, a weak side, if we take the the surprise or the tactics out of it and just kind of like woodpecker them to the right shoulder the whole game, eventually they might get the hang of it, right? So what are things that you're looking for to make like another adjustment and another adjustment so this cat and mouse game really starts versus, oh, it's 0-0 zero, zero in the first set, Alberta? Yeah, serve them to one. Like that might not be working halfway through the fourth set or even halfway through the first set if they're making adjustments, right? Yeah, you can definitely rep players into rhythm and rep them into confidence, right? Like, and that's the cool thing about working with elite athletes. Like when they start doing the same thing over and over again, they make adjustments on their own naturally to, to compensate, to find success. So it can definitely backfire on you. Yeah, there's definitely, I've had some amazing, amazing cat and mouse conversations with coaches over the years, especially like after a match that we've already played on like the layers of game plan. So for example, against, against Alberta in that, in that Canada games final. Yeah. Our, like our layer one was we were going to serve position one and knowing that the lib was going to be there three, four out of six rotations, but we were, so we were going to do it anyway. We were comfortable with what that would do. But if that failed, okay, what's our next level of our game plan? Well, let's, I think maybe we're going to serve this, this left side or the front court left side, whatever the adjustment was. Um, I don't think we made that adjustments thankfully. So, so I don't remember what it was specifically, but <laughs> But I think, again, great coaches, I remember having this conversation with Ben Josephson on, like, the layers of his game plan. Okay, so layer one is we're going to do this, and we're waiting for this certain thing to happen before we engage with layer two of our game plan. And, and maybe your players don't even know the layers of the game plan, right? But, like, as a coaching staff, you definitely do. So it's like, and, and again, I, I understand that the, a regular club coach probably can't make these adjustments doesn't have enough data points, doesn't have enough time to scout an opponent, but we're lucky enough that we can. So when we're talking about game planning, yeah, we have like two or three layers of game plan that we're looking for. Okay, if player one starts to rep into rhythm, who's our next serving target? If if we're if we're in a trap left blocking scheme against this opponent and the setter starts to figure it out that they can run, that they, that they can dump more, they can set more 50, like what's our next layer of our game plan? Um, but you can absolutely teach a team how to beat your tactic just by doing the tactic over and over and over again. And that, that's a scary thing if you don't have an adjustment to make. Because then as a coach, you're feeling completely helpless and you've left your team out to dry. You're hung, you've hung your team out to dry.
Yeah, and as you're explaining this, uh, another question came to mind. Have you ever withheld a tactic because you want to save it? Like maybe you're late in the second semester and you don't want to play school ABC this way because you're like, odds are we're going to play them on a crossover, a semi, or even the final, and we might want to save this. Or do you, when you discover a tactic, you're going to use it and you're so confident in your skills, you're just going to find a new one for the final. Like, have you ever withheld because you don't want to give it away too early? Yes, but very rarely. I just think it can be a dangerous, like, I, I would rather my team win now and feel confidence beating a team than, than potentially struggle where I have a tactic that can help them. Um, I, and I think other coaches might disagree with me on that just because maybe they maybe it's hard to beat a team twice in a row and, they, and they're okay with losing a certain match, but I don't like I don't like playing those games. If I have a tactic that I think is going to be successful, I think... And, and, and even more than this, Josh, like, I trust that I'm going to have a next layer of the game plan. Okay, so I think this is going to work now, and we're going to beat them. And if they make adjustments, that's cool. I'll make adjustments back. Like, I'm always trusting, and I think I learned this from Dave for sure, that, that I'm always trusting in the next layer of the game plan. So if we can beat them now doing this, that doesn't mean that's the only way to beat them. Nice. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, just the next thing I had on my notes, uh, you and I attended a, a, a scouting session in Gatineau with Lionel Leddit and Nate Gold from the U.S. was there. And I, I'm interested in your reaction to this because this really opened my eyes to sharing information with athletes where Nate Go is, is awesome and he has so much data, but he really wanted to simplify it for the U.S. athletes. And the one example he gave us is instead of knowing that the right side gets 60% and then 25 here and 10% here, their, their basic plan was when Gavin Smith's in the front row, this is our blocking system. When he's in the back row, this is our blocking system. Or if Nathan Jansen's in the front row, the six-back is going to take one step to his right. Like, they didn't want their players thinking about math and percentages and distribution that way. They just wanted to alert, like, who's the key player here and how are we alerting for that? And, I, and I'm curious, have you ever shared information this way that the athlete might be able just to digest the information overload? Or do you want them thinking in terms of distribution and the math side of, of the data and the tactics? Yeah, Nate, Nate blew my mind during that session as well, Josh. You weren't alone in that. He used the words, I want my stats to tell the story. I don't want my players to remember the stats. I want them to remember the story. And and I remember like that really made me think as well because I've always been a data-driven guy, and I've always liked coaching players that were the same. And, and the reality is that most players that we coach are not – are not thinking the numbers all the time. They're thinking of like how to win. They're thinking of like what the next play is, right? Like that's and that's and I, and the more I thought about it, the more I said that that what I want my players to think about. So even if my players are nerdy like me, I don't know that that's the way to make them the most successful. If they can play free, if they can let it rip, if they can go after every ball without having to think too much, I think they're way better players than if they're overanalyzing like I do. <laughs> so. Yeah, I've definitely, in the last year or so, I have for sure simplified how much information we're telling our players and trying to use the data to tell a story instead of just putting billions of percentages on a piece of paper and hoping that they remember something out of that. Like, I just don't think that's reasonable. So Nate was saying, even at, at the national team level, like you said, they're, they're simplifying their game plan. So they have more default systems that they train all the time and then for every match that they're playing against a different opponent, they're hoping to make no more than three different adjustments to their to their default systems. So maybe like position one is playing a little shallower against versus left side. Maybe they're they're going to block. Like, like you said, position six is going to take one step left when certain players are in the back row. 
and they're going to set more 31 than 51. Like that's it, right? Like those are the those are the kind of adjustments to their default systems that they want to make so that their players can play free. Their players aren't thinking about where they need to be and trying to like take in all this information in real time and not having nearly enough time to do it effectively. Like our sport, every point is like three seconds long. How much do we think that our players can really think about in that much time? And how much of my hour-long game planning session is really going to stick in there once the lights turn on and, and the, the crowd's all there and the ball's in play? Like I don't think it's nearly as much as I want, as I, as I hoped it would be. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club! And if it's not too personal with what uh, you and the coaching staff has going on at there, Mac, would you mind just sharing a typical week about when do you install this game plan? Like if you play Saturday, is that meeting happening Friday? Is it happening Tuesday? Like when do you start to let the athletes know? Because uh, I think cramming for the exam is really tempting, but I found with, with the college team, the the pregame meeting being the tactics wasn't acceptable. Like we need to do it the week before just so guys could uh, digest it. They could see it in drills a little bit more. But I, I was definitely a coach who suffered from like the, okay, it's it's after the first set of the women's game, we're the men's game, let's go talk in pregame. That wasn't enough time, but I'm curious, how have you found the, the best way to get the data into the athletes so they could you know, digest it and, and make an actionable approach versus just throwing numbers at them before the game? Yeah, I've been on teams that have tried a whole bunch of different things. I'm not sure which one's right. I think it's so dependent on your players, but what, I, what I've really started to do is go in really small chunks throughout the week. So like what what Dave used to do, and I, I don't I'm not with the men's program anymore, so I don't know exactly what they're doing now. But like what we used to do was we would meet on Wednesdays, and then maybe again on on Fridays if we were playing on Saturday. Um, so we'd have like, but generally we would have like one long game planning session, and maybe that would turn into an hour. And uh, I think it worked really really well because there were some guys on that team like Stephen Marr and Danny Damianco that were just genius volleyball IQ players. So like they could take in that information and, and be engaged for a full hour on, on a single team. But for the rest of us mortal volleyball players and coaches, like I don't think that hour always goes in the way that we expect it to. So what the women's team has started to do is we will introduce a team on Monday and just give them like a tiny little bit of that team. So maybe we're just watching some of their offense and backhand situations, or maybe we're just watching their servers. And then on Tuesday, we'll go in again, just maybe for like five, ten minutes and, and have another quick conversation and start introducing more layers of what that team is. And the neat part about that is, let's say that you're, you're 
meeting in like those 10, 15 minute little buckets, then you can start adding the tactics that you need to play that team into practice. So for the players, it's like, okay, we're going to serve position one versus team. Let's watch a little bit of video to see why. And then we walk onto the court and we work on serving position one. And we're going to, okay, we're going to run more 31 against this team. So we watch that for like maybe five minutes in video. And then we walk on the court and we're going to, and we're going to run a bunch of 31 in practice. Um, and this team, they run, they, their right side's really good. She's a lefty and she hits a ton of line. So we got to like work on defending that. So we watch that for five minutes, 10 minutes, and then we walk on court and, and work on that tactic. So I, I find that has a lot more success because it kind of builds into, it, it can build confidence. They know what, they know why we're doing certain things in practice. And then when it happens in a game, it's not coming as a surprise because we weren't, we didn't give them 50 different things to think about half an hour before the game or even three days before the game. Um, some coaches I know are even doing their video sessions on court. So like they're bringing data volley, they're bringing their, their computer on court, they're putting it onto a TV or projecting it. And they're spending like 10 minutes on court every day looking at an opponent. Um, I think, I think there's a ton of value in that tactic to like, to re and I think even as club coaches, I think that could be applied. So like we're seeing a team twice a week for a couple hours. Okay, we're gonna spend five minutes and we know that this is a team that we're playing in the upcoming tournament. All right, like, like, let's watch them for five minutes and then work out some tactics to beat that team. I think there's a ton more value in that than trying to cram all this information into an athlete for an hour. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I agree. And as you're saying this, I'm, I'm stealing ideas as we go here. This is awesome. Um, one other thing I had on my notes just before we get to the way you practice plan and the way you build this in is I'm just curious how you're communicating in match because I think there's a lot of ways to do it. And I have a friend who was a part of a very successful OUA program, but their scout would basically yell over every rotation and be like, oh, middles and take, like, we're, we're learning for this, six back, we want you to take this step or this step. And I, I thought it eliminated a little bit of athlete autonomy and a little bit of thought where they're just basically being moved around like a joystick. And, and they were successful, and I think the scout was top tier. So because they were so prepared, they were almost confident that they were going to be put in the right spot. But uh, I'm curious, are you guys that tactical where you're shouting instructions? Or is this, you know, a, a pregame, a timeout thing, a reminder thing? Like, how do you find the best way to communicate with the athletes without you know treating them like they're a video game <laughs> i know for sure that i have done that in the past and i'm not sure it was very successful at all. <laughs> um and for the exact reason that you mentioned josh like they just they don't they need to think for themselves because when they think for themselves they can create their own confidence and they believe in themselves in the end they're the players and i'm just i'm a guide i i'm, I'm trying to get them I, I can't be they can't be relying on me to for their success so, yeah, I've definitely scaled way back how much information I'm giving. I'm hoping that our game planning during the course of the week gives them an idea of what they're looking for when they look through the net. And when they look through the net and see something specifically, they know right away, okay, that's one of the three adjustments that we made. And if they don't see that, then it's fine. Our default system will let them still play comfortably and, and confidently. Um, I definitely am trying not to be – that's such a great way of, like, as a remote control in a video game, like – it's such an easy thing to do when you have the whole stats, you have everything in front of you. And like for me, data volley is like my comfort zone. So I'm looking at like all the numbers and what they've done and all of our game plans. And like that, that's, that's where I'm most comfortable, but that's not where my players need to be. So in terms of communicating, I'm giving our players, I'm working on, I don't know if I'm doing it well yet, but I'm working on giving our players way less, um, when they come off to timeouts, maybe giving them a tiny little bit, but it's probably something 
that they've already heard. It's one of the three adjustments that we made over the course of the week to prepare for the match. And the rest of it is like building confidence, pumping tires and making sure that they're feeling good about themselves. Um, our timeouts are, are definitely tactical, but I know I'm working hard to give less information because I think in the long run, it'll make them more successful. Awesome. Awesome. And we just recently had uh, Shane White, who you know really well on the show, and he, he's a, similar to you. He's had experience on the men's and women's side, and, and we both kind of agreed that a high-performance athlete is a high-performance athlete, but he does have you know, two or three things he's aware of when he's working with both gender. And I'm wondering, w- with your level of experience, is there any difference in the men's and women's games as far as like tactics or communication styles that you use with the athlete, or is high-level volleyball so similar that you don't need to like consciously be aware of, of how you're presenting or, or speaking to athletes? Yeah, I want to be coaching at a level where I'm respecting men and women at a really high level, that I'm making them feel confident in themselves. Um, It's interesting. There are differences between the two genders, but not, in my opinion, tactically. It's actually been really cool watching, like, the men's game incorporate more women's tactics. Like, even, like, uh, I'm trying to think of who this was. It'll come to me in the name, but, like, Western, the Western men used to do this really well. Like they would tip to position four with their 51 attacker at will. And so like we would double down, we would, we would double block the 50 and they would tip to position four, which traditionally would be like a, a classic women's play because you can tip in so many, so many really good places. And then the other way is like the women's game is using more pipe than it ever has before. There's more spin servers at the pro level than there ever has been before. So like I think the two games are really, really similar there are some adjustments just because of the size, like a guy can hang in the air for ever, it seems like. And and because of the power level, they can they can blow up a block. They can hit a bad shot into a good form block and still and still score a point. And in the women's game that's a little bit harder. But for the most part, tactically, I find the games really similar and I really enjoy taking games taking tactics from each gender and, and taking and bringing it into the other side. Um, this this story is from a it's an Australian coach. I met him a couple of years ago, and I wish I'm so bad with names, Josh. So I, I won't be able to name drop him. But <laughs> he, he, I met him at the USHP tournament while I was coaching Team Canada. Um, it was a team, team Canada youth team, and he was working with the women, but had worked with the national team men before. Um, so he's working with both genders, and I was like, I had to ask him. So I'm like, okay, I have to ask you, like, what are the differences that you found working with really, really high level men, really, really high level women? And he was like, nothing. There are no changes tactically. The game is volleyball, volleyball is volleyball. But he's like, in terms of team makeup, if I ask, if I ask my men's team who should start for the big game, my men's team will always pick the top six players on the team, and regardless of like what the relationships are or or what that looks like, um, if they're if they're if this guy's a nice guy or not a nice guy, like the guys don't care. He's like, even on my women's, on my, on the national team that I'm working with right now, if I ask them who should start, they will pick the players that they get along with the best. And I was like, kind of blown away, because I, I think, I, I think it's true. I think that the connections that you make in women's volleyball are more important sometimes than the actual volleyball. So like, we're working really hard at this at Mac at, at growing a culture where the girls trust each other where they want to be there for each other. Because I think that those elements of, of team volleyball are more important in the women's game than they are in the men. The men will just 
put the best six players on the floor, and regardless of, of relationships or past experiences, they're going to go after it together. And I don't think that that always works really well in the women's game. I think sometimes you need to build your culture. You need to spend more time um, making them, yeah, be together, trust each other, have fun with each other. Because in the in those big moments, if they don't, if there's a if there's even an element of doubt of trust, I'm not sure that team's going to play as well as it could on the women's side. That's really interesting. Yeah, thank you for sharing that because it's it's got my wheels spinning. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are starting to go back on their own experiences and, and try to create a plan for the next. That's I really want to be clear. Like I really hate forming differences between the two genders. Like I'm not a fan. I I love working in both, and it's just so fascinating to me that that when I start thinking about that and the players that I've coached over all the years, like I think that's true. I've coached a whole bunch of guys that are like that, that traditionally like are called a-holes, but their teammates will want them on the court when in those big moments. And on the girls' side, I'm like, it's, it's the same difference. Like I've coached a bunch of women that, that, that didn't really, they weren't loved on that team. And when that, if that team were asked if that player should be on the floor, I'm not sure that that team would say yes. So it's it's really really fascinating thing to think about, um, and and I would say is the one thing that I treat both genders differently in is I, I think the team, the teamality, the team culture is more important on the girls' side than it is on the guys. Awesome, awesome, and I'm just going down my list here, and you've mentioned. Uh... You've done your own studies, and I think that's really valuable to kind of go through certain things. But I was hoping you could share your your process for finding a direct cause. So let's just use a, a random example. There's coaches out there who will say, you know, they've really moneyballed this thing, and their team's going to need 11 kills and ace two blocks. And if they serve tough, the other team's going to make three hitting errors. And they kind of have a, a list or a recipe of how to win that set. And there's other coaches who approach it saying, you know, at the end of the game, if we have a higher kill percentage, our chance of winning is going to be huge. So they train to that, but to me, the, the kill percentage isn't specific enough. Like, what would be some direct causes that you can then go use in training to find this? Because the stat, the stat isn't the the cheat to the the test here. We still got to find an actionable thing to do, right? So, when you find a really good stat, how are you reverse engineering or working backwards to then use that in the practice gym to build it up? Oh, that's such a cool question. Yeah, I definitely know coaches that that like kind of have a, a, a set number of of kills and blocks and aces that they need per set. And if they get those numbers, they're probably going to win. I've never, I've never coached that way. And I definitely am a huge proponent of like, of having a kill percentage goal that we want, that we want to hit at. But in terms of training, I think it's really important that you're still teaching athletes how to be successful with, if it's, if we're talking about kill efficiency, like, okay, so I need a kill efficiency of 30%. Well, how do we get that number? Do we have to hit? Does this player have to hit more line? Does he have to hit more cross? Do we have to add more off off speed shots into her game? Um, is she seeing the block really well? So, like, I think the connection between stats and, and player development is is important. Okay, this player doesn't have a, a higher enough kill efficiency, but then the question is why? Like, what what part of her game do we need to work on, and how much time do we have to work on that to actually impact that kill efficiency? Because I'm not just going to sit here and write her off saying, well, she only can hit 20%, so therefore she can't play. So like, what, what needs to happen in her development for that kill efficiency to be raised? Um, I, yeah, I'm not a big fan of like saying we need X number of this and X number of that. I've never, I've never coached that way just because I think it kind of limits your team. Like, I think there's, there's ways to win in a whole bunch of different scenarios. But... And, and that might work for some players, for some coaches. I'm not sure that that's my 
my strength. But I, I probably, if I'm being honest, I probably do that in other elements too. Like I really want to maximize our kill efficiency. I want to minimize the opponent kill efficiency. And that's like, seems so simple, but it's how you do that from a tactical standpoint of view is so player specific. So if we want to minimize opponent kill efficiency, then we're looking at, okay, how do our blockers move? How do our defenders move? Where are they strong and where are they weak? Do I need to maximize our strengths or do I, do I, do I need to minimize our weaknesses or do I need to work on our, min, our, on our weaknesses to make them better so I can balance out the player? And, and that conversation is a whole can of worms, as you know, right? Like you're going to get stuck in, okay, how much time do we have? Is this a player a fourth-year player or are they a first-year player? Are we at the end of our season or versus the beginning of our season? Um, do I want to make sure that this player is good in three years? Because I think that they could be amazing in three years and, and looking at, at potentially playing pro. Or do we need this player to get this done now so we can win on Saturday? Um, all these conversations are like, I think, again, like you said, the art of coaching. The stats just say, okay, we, like she needs to hit higher efficiency. Great. That's awesome. But that doesn't tell you what to do with that player. <laughs> I think the, the art of our, of, our, of our profession is how do we get them to hit? How do, how do we make them better players based on the skill set they already have? And I, I'm, like I said, I'm a super nerd. So if I look at a player, if I, if I look, I, was, I used to be a math teacher. So like at the end of the, at the end of the semester, you have a, a calculus exam and going into that calculus class, you have a certain amount of knowledge. Well, my job as the teacher is to help that, that student bridge the gap between where they are and where they need to be. And that gap is different for every single student that you ever teach. It's the same in volleyball. You have to bridge the gap to get to a certain skill set, but it's going to change based on who that player is. And I'm, I'm curious how you divide your practice plan or your seasonal plan because uh, I think a, a pessimist in volleyball could say, well, if you score more points on defense, like point scoring, you'll win. But to me, we need, what, four to six of those per set versus we need to side out, you know, 12 to 14 times and have a, a really high first ball efficiency, right? So with, with knowing certain things that are going to lead to wins, but how do you still divide your practice plan into knowing, like, what's the most valuable? Like, to shout out Frank and Tegan from the first chair there, you, you talked about if you're an OVA like coach, you're talking about serving past the first month, so you're not going to light up your team after the first tournament when they don't know how to block. But I'm wondering how do you lay out your seasonal plan versus, like, what are the pillars we need to win and, like, what's something we need for the first event versus what are we going to need by provincials? Yeah, I think even in that, I, I might I might have changed my tune a little bit as I'm doing more and more research. <laughs> like, if I'm a club coach right now, I want to develop arm speed, arm strength. I want to be attacking as much as I possibly can be. With like with passing and serving mixed in there as well, but I, it's so funny. Like the more I think about our sport, and the more I study it, it's like like kills account for a huge percentage of the points that we score in our match. I think I talked about this in my OVA kind of symposium thing that I've done. If you guys want to shout that out or whatever, it's, it'd be cool if you did. But and there was a whole bunch of other people that spoke amazingly as well. And uh, Jimmy L. Turk did a really amazing presentation, and Jen and Jen. Nielsen did some really good work there too, so I, I want to make sure I shout them out in, the, in those OVA presentations. But yeah, in, in that presentation, I talked about how important it is that we look at attacking as like, I called it the currency of our sport is kills. Just like the currency of basketball is sinking baskets and the currency of baseball is scoring runs. So like the currency of our sport is, is kills. 
and I'm not sure that we spend nearly enough time on on working on developing attackers, whether it's range or whether it's jumping or whether it's strength and hitting harder. And I think I've kind of changed my tune since my since my since my podcast with with Frank and T. But it's um, I definitely think from a from a from a coach development standpoint, from working with 15 new athletes. That would be my number one thing. I'm like, I need them to be better attackers. And if we can pass and keep the ball in play, amazing. But we have to we have to be better attackers. We have to hit high balls better. We have to hit more with more range when we're in system. I definitely have changed the way that I've looked at the game just because of statistically how many of the points scored, especially at the higher level, is from attacking. And if you can't attack, then you can't you can't keep moving forward in the in the game. So if I'm taking a young team. I'm spending way less time on defense than I probably would have even six months ago, and I'm spending way more time attacking. Obviously, you have to keep them healthy and make sure their shoulders are strong and do all those proper development checkpoints to make sure that they're okay. But from an actual development standpoint, attacking is is the currency of our sport, and I don't think that I even knew that enough even a year ago. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned over the last year or so, that we have to attack more. And do you think there's room in volleyball to kind of quantify tactics? And the reason I say that is, is the Toronto, uh, excuse me, the Toronto Raptors hosted a free coaching clinic and I'm not the biggest Raptors fan. And I went and I left thinking Nick Nurse is the smartest guy around and I bought his book and I'm trying to learn as much as him, but he mentioned their offense. They want to get free throws. If they can't get free throws, they're going to shoot layups. If they can't do that, they're going to go corner three, then elbow threes. If they can't get that, they'll settle for a two in the paint and they don't like to take twos outside the paint. Like they've quantified what are the highest efficient things in situations we can create. And then as a casual fan i'm watching them play and they really live this tactical like uh, attack plan that he's created on offense so with your mindset that we need kills would you ever say to a setter we need 51s we need 31s we need our left sides to score down the line so like this is how we're going to approach the game because this is like the the efficiency or the areas we need to score the most or or is that taking too much control of the athlete and trying to make them into robots versus letting them play like where, where's the balance maybe to apply this nick nurse tactic into volleyball so funny because I talk to Jimmy L. Turk about this all the time. Him and I are big basketball fans, and we're always texting back and forth during games, arguing about about the Raptors' offense. <laughs> we talk about this all the time, and, and I, I, I don't want to speak for Jimmy too much, but he argues all the time that that what what Nick Nurse is talking about in that in that situation works really really well in a regular season, but if you have an open 15-foot two-pointer in the playoffs and everyone else is guarded and you need points because there's two minutes left in the game, they should take that shot. It might be not like the least efficient shot over the course of a, over a big sample size, but in that moment when you need two points and you have a player that has the ball in that situation, take the shot because you're probably going to score with it. So I think it's really fascinating from a volleyball perspective. I think personally it can put players too much into a box but at the same time, like of course it can. It, like a fifty-one is generally the most efficient attack on a volleyball team. Like for most of the teams I've coached, that's true. Um, and maybe maybe the the right side is the next efficient, and maybe the left side is the, is the next efficient. So, but all of that in our sport is really really dependent on matchups and who's across the net um, from a setting perspective. I don't want them 
thinking like robots. I'm not a huge fan of that. I'm more a fan of, of a setter looking through the net and figuring out, okay, what are they trying to do to stop me? Like, especially at the OUA level where you have a week or more to plan for each opponent. Like, opponents have, have scouted us. So they know what our strength is. So, like, let's say that our middle is is our, our, our most efficient attacker. Well, that means that our opponent has spent a whole week trying to plan on how they're going to stop that. So even though our pass says that our middle is, is hitting 50%, against a team that's scouted that and prepared for that and maybe even made tactical adjustments for that, well, maybe our middle is only going to hit 30% in this system and we should be sending someone else because they're going to be hitting 35 I think our sport, and even that's even true over the course of a match, like those adjustments can be made over the course of a match where suddenly your middle is not the, not the right option anymore. So I, I don't like putting ourselves into a box in terms of we should be doing this, this, or this. Unless, like, maybe on a global scale that, that, that can be successful. But when you get into the nitty-gritty of a match, I don't like being limited by rules, right? I don't like our players being like, I'm only allowed to do this because this is part of our system. Like, in, those, in, the, in, the, in the flow of a game like that, I think creativity and... And, and more, and just thinking outside the box can be really successful. Like, watching watch Brazil play, the Brazil men's team, especially over the last, like, 10 years or so, like, there's so much creativity on that team, and I think that creativity is almost trained. Like, they're doing things that, in matches, that I always wonder, I'm like, have they trained that? Like, have they, how many times has he done that, like, bump 31 set, running towards outside the court of two? How many times <laughs> has that happened in practice? And, and if that happened, and that's a perfect example, like in most of the gyms in our, in, in the OVA right now, if the setter like ran out of position two towards the wall, bump set behind him or her to the middle and like the middle tried to find a way to score, how many coaches would say, well, oh, that should have been a high ball to the right side. Don't do that again. And how many coaches would say, whoa, that was awesome. We should try that again. Let's do it again. Right? Like. And I know for me, I used to be the coach that said, that's not the right play. That's not high efficiency enough. And now, as a coach, I'm, I'm becoming more and more like, that was really cool. Let's try that again. Let's see if we can, like, if we, if we get in that situation again, maybe we can make that work. So I, I definitely think that those limiting rules, like, like you're talking about with Nick Nurse, can be good on a global scale. But at the same time, I want our, our players to be free. I want them not thinking too much. And sometimes basketball specifically football is the same somewhat can be like they can get themselves really into like a box this is what we do and this is all we do and i don't want to be like that as a volleyball coach i think it's kind of less fun this is awesome man um sorry this is way off script and i didn't warn you this so sorry if it catches you off guard but thanks to you know covid pausing the world it's created a lot of opportunities for education and and matt harris and i have been going back and forth a lot on tactical periodization and you know jose marino and soccer really mastered this but i was listening to a rugby presentation and in england right now they're basically arguing that motor science and decision learning like it's different than actually how we teach it that if there's going to be a complex skill made at game speed the athlete's not actually making a decision they're making a reaction and to kind of hear you talk about the setter doing this freestyle stuff that basically my understanding of this one rugby club is they're only trying to let them play at game speed as much as possible and then they'll go back and say like this is a tactic we can add or this is a decision but to have an athlete have to you know see the blocker and see a seam and hit that decision sure we can script that a little bit but because it happens at such a fast 
speed and you don't want your attacker passing a ball swinging outside and thinking if they show a seam I'm going to hit this if they don't I'm going to hit line like they don't have that decision made up in their mind till it happens that you basically need to play your sport as much as possible under specific guidelines for it to happen and I'm curious with your data driven and the way you look at periodization do you guys play a lot in practice and you try to catch them in these situations or how have you trained like this level of decision making that you're talking about with kills and arm swings and everything else you've gotten into yeah super cool um i don't know i've i've talked to well okay i, I can definitely talk about what we're doing we're playing a lot of six on six we're talking we're playing a lot of six on six and and in some and we're stopping at six on six we're, we're taking a player out and being like hey well, what were you thinking there what was that what was the decision like for you trying to get them to like reflect on that situation go back on it and then, then give them another chance to do it maybe making a, a different decision I think there's a ton of value in that. I, and I know some really, really great coaches who are also doing more and if then, then this, if this, then this, and like making players and practicing that over and over and over again so that they can like learn what they're looking for. Um, I don't know which one is necessarily right. I, but regardless, though, Josh, I think playing in, the, like you said, like playing in game like speeds is crucial for development. And I think especially as young developmental coaches, I know I was like this too. I would slow the game right down. I would put, I would go into this like one specific situation and try and, and try and teach. And I would lose out on all these opportunities to, to get players reps and let players learn for themselves and make mistakes and, and grow from those mistakes. I think sometimes we get in the, we get in our own way when we're coaches, but regardless of whether you're going to teach an if then, then if this, then this, and if this, then this, or if you're just going to like let the players go with the flow, I think it needs to be at game speed. I think there needs to be, because all those reading, all this decision-making is happening sometimes without us even doing anything, right? Like if a player hits a bad shot and gets completely slam-locked, in that player's mind, like they're probably not going to hit that shot again. And then as a coach, it's like, was that you can ask, was that a good shot? And they're going to say, no, it was not a good shot. Or maybe they hit a good shot and you're going to be like, actually, it was a good shot. Try it again. And you're going to have more success that way. You might have some, some poor ones here and there, but you're going to have success long term. And, and kind of not getting in your own way, not, not trying to, like, again, script everything. But let them let, let, the, let the game teach the game, which is I know is a big thing in the States right now. But I, I'm a big fan of that. I don't want to I don't want to script our practices so much that every single little skill is broken down to a level where they're not we're wasting reps we're wasting opportunities to learn and and all the other players who i'm not talking to are getting nothing right like we've all been that coach where we talk for half an hour over the course of and you like obviously over the course of the podcast i can talk so if i get going on a topic like yeah i'll talk for half an hour about it my players are all sitting there listening to me and how much of that is going in probably very little and I'm, I'm almost curious to, I know universities and national teams, you guys have access to the VERT, which is a great device and a great tool, but I can't afford it for my 18U team. If you were in that situation, would you be counting reps and counting arm swings or just an expert at drill design? Because 
Whenever I learn about periodization, I did more learning on the job than I was really comfortable doing because there's so much data out there, but then there's stuff that just doesn't work for you. Like I was, I was speaking to Kerry McDonald the other day and obviously like the science says it takes 72 hours for an athlete to fully recover from like an intense workout. But he said at UBC, they got it down to 48 because their fitness just grew and they did other stuff, right? So there's, there's not really the, all these hard and fast rules. So I, I do believe in like if an athlete drops below 80% of their capacity or goes over like 120, I think is the number, like they're at more risk of injury but if you were coaching a club team or maybe you could share what you do at mac in terms of jumps and arm swings like where is the sweet spot to kind of push them and make sure they're game ready without overcooking them cool okay so here's what i would do if i'm a club coach there are two types i've, I've just learned this is kind of one of my deep dives over the last couple months while we're stuck at home not doing all that much so i've been looking into into periodization and, and specifically there are two types of, of load that you can look at. You can look at external load or internal load. And I'm sure people who are really, really smart will, will tell me that I'm not explaining this totally right. But external load is something that's like really measurable, um, something that, that can be like, like jumps, for example. Um, or like if you're a soccer coach, then you're looking at like how, how far they run or, how, or, or like what their total distance was over the course of practice or the course of the game. So it's like external load. We would use the verts for McMaster to be external load. As, as a measure of that. And then the other type of load is internal load, which is more how the player feels, right? It's like, it's like how their, how their, um, their, their biology is reacting to the training load. So some teams will measure that using like, um, like heart rate monitors. So you can do the exact same training day one and then do it again day three, but a player's heart rate will be lower or higher in day, in day three. And therefore, like their body's reacting differently to the same exact training. Internal load is how we're like responding, almost like psychologically or biologically to the to the training. And so RPE is something. If I'm a club coach, here's what I'm measuring: practice to practice. After every session, I'm asking the players, "How hard did you think that that training was?" And that's going to be the RPE. I'm going to multiply that times the length of the training. And that's the what they call sessional RPE. So that's going to be a number of like the athlete load, and that is a perfectly amazing substitute for external load. It's almost ideal in some ways. It's almost more important than the external load because now you know how the athletes are feeling and how they're feeling will actually dictate if they're going to have injuries or not. So because we know this, like two different athletes could respond completely differently to the exact same training, but how they feel, what their internal load will will determine if they're gonna if they're gonna have more success long term so that's one thing i would measure it's called sessional rpe and it's just how they feel on a measure of scale to 10 times the length of the practice and i would track that over the course of an entire season and then the other thing i would measure and this is straight from carry is i would get pain scores on our players so okay so we we trained yesterday for two hours the player felt like it was a seven out of ten what is the pain score the next day? If the pain score is high, that means that, that, that the 7 out of 10 for that player was too much, and I need to lower it for the next one. If, if their pain score is low and it's all good, that means they reacted well to the training, and maybe we can stay the same or even increase that player's load for the next, for the next training. So I don't think that we need verts to get, like, I'm using the verts because it's a ton of cool data, and I can, like, compare their actual jump load with how they're feeling. But regardless, if you don't have the verts, it's all good. Just do internal load and find the sessional RPE. And then 
match that with pain score, and you're going to have a great idea of how your players are feeling, and you can easily make adjustments based on what you did the last practice to the next practice. Yeah, I love hearing that. I think the only thing I might have trouble with maybe in my younger coaching days versus now is just not reacting when the athlete says something. Like if I thought I ran a really tough practice and it was really intense and the athlete comes up and says, oh, that was pretty average. Or that one says like, oh, that was game intensity or whatever your scale is for rating it. Like, I think they need to know that, that their scoring system needs to be consistent. Because like you said, you know, Nathan's score might be 7 out of 10 and I might rank that a 9 out of 10 and my shoulder's sore. But as long as like when we do that similar session again, if the score is the same, then that's accurate data. But Kerry basically told me like if garbage information's coming in, then garbage information's going out and your periodization is going to be thrown off, right? Yeah. One of the things that I've really learned over the last year or so about periodization is like I had I felt like I had a really great plan for the 2019-20 season. I had this great awesome spreadsheet laid out for our entire season and and I and we stuck to it the entire season and didn't make a single adjustment to it over the course of the season in terms of athlete monitoring. And once we were done, I'm like, "Holy crap, we totally failed." Like this spreadsheet's great. It looks really awesome. But because one athlete responds to training differently than another, or maybe one athlete, because because she's because of just the way the practice was formed, maybe she got like 50 more reps than another player in practice. I don't if I didn't know that she was sore the next day. Like there are ways that we could that we could have done it, but like our our data flow and our information and our and our, and our information gathering wasn't at the level needed to monitor our athletes on a day to day basis. And so I think that's something that I'm getting way better at. That my spreadsheet looks amazing, and I, I, I think it looks cool, and it's, it's going to be functional. But if we're not taking the data from the athletes directly and using that data to impact their training, then I don't think we're doing a good enough job as a, as a, from a periodization standpoint. And if you did go down the, the road of external and internal and, you know, the sessional RP and all that stuff, then maybe jumps and swings aren't a priority. But for the coaches who really subscribe to Glenn's appeal about like he has a jump count and he's got his practices leveled out, where do you stand on the philosophy that like, let's use the extreme example, maybe your setter is going to jump 200 times in a five set match. Do you ever train to 200 times in practice or do you try to get them close? Like where, where is the number that if your left side is going to hit, you know, X number of balls, do you hit that number of balls in practice or where do you find the, the balance so they're game ready without again, overcooking them? Yeah, very, very rarely would I go all the way to, to like a five set number, but I would. It depends on how many days before our next match, right? Like if let's say that we have a match on Saturday and we haven't played since a week before, we have like a bye week or whatever, then I think on the Friday or Saturday or even on the Monday, I might train a five setter that day, knowing that they have enough time to recover before our next match. Um, I think that, that there's room for that for sure. Um, the hard part, at least in the only way, is like at the end of the season, you might be playing two or three matches straight of five setters in one weekend, right? And that's the level that I will never go to, right? Like that's, I want to train just like running a marathon, I think, in terms of in terms of how athletes train for that. Like they're rarely running the marathon before they actually run the marathon. And I think in our sport, the marathon is that championship weekend where you're playing three sets straight or three matches straight or five setters. So I think we'll, we'll definitely train five setters, but only if we have enough time to recover. I think the hardest part is knowing like what our marathon actually is. For us, it's winning a championship on the last weekend of the season. So what does that look like? For at a club level, like if the marathon is provincials and it's three days straight, then I don't think you should train three days straight as hard as they can go almost ever. 
but maybe like playing two, three setters in, in, in one night or something. Yeah, maybe that's possible because that's not really the marathon. Nice, nice. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a quick example of what to look for in being flexible in your seasonal plan. Because I think it is important to have a map, but like you said, you don't decide that in September and that's what you're going to stick to the whole year. So obviously athletes pain scores and injuries and load and stuff, but are you also looking at if, if the teaching really settled in that if you spent six weeks on service Eve and it's just not working, like do, do you stay there or because the plan said to move on to a different tactic, do you move? Like where do you look for little triggers in your art of coaching about when do you change your plan that you put so much time and focus into laying out? Yeah, such a cool question. I think, I think it's more athlete dependent based on, on how you feel like that player is, um, where the, what their athleticism is like, what their health is like, but I'll give it, I'll give it a story here from, from 2013. I was with Dave Preston, um, with the national team, with the junior national team, and we were going to world championships that summer. And we had a player who didn't play at McMaster. It was from a different school. And we were working all summer with him on trying to make a block move. He was a middle blocker. I'm trying to make a block move that we thought would make him an amazing player, the next step for him. And, and ideally, that, that step would come before World Championships. But the reality is it, it never did. We worked all summer with him. We, 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 it felt like we were kind of beating a dead horse. And he was trying. He was working really hard to get it. And he just never got it. And so interesting because we played against his team's school the following CIS championship. And there was that player doing the exact move that we had been trying to get him to do. And he was now doing it against us for his school. Um, sometimes it just takes a long time for a skill to go in. And I don't think necessarily stopping your teaching for that and waiting for that skill to go in is the right play all the time. Right. And, and maybe they're going to, they're going to keep failing at it for a while. And they're good, but if they're working on it and you know it's something that's in their mind that they're thinking about, then I think it's okay to move on. Like, do they get it? Yeah, okay, then we can move on. That's the one part where it's not like calculus, right? Like, you don't always need to be able to multiply to move on to the next skill in our sport. So, like, yeah, we with that player, we had taught it, he was working on it, and he was thinking about it, but now we can go on to like the next thing, whether it was serving or attacking or something else. But that block move was still in there, and he was still working on it. I think sometimes we expect immediate results as a coach, and you're not going to get them right away. So from a seasonal plan point of view, I would recommend moving on, especially at the younger levels. Like if you've taught passing and, and you have three or four skill keys, and you know your players know those skill keys and are thinking about those skill keys, and and now that in your seasonal plan it's time to move on to something else, I, I would recommend moving on. Because you can always come back to those skill keys over the course of, of your training. If you're in practice and the player like forgets to do something, it's an easy question. Like, what did you forget to do? Ah, oh, I forgot to do. I forgot to do this. Yep, good to go. Keep going. Sometimes it just takes a long time for the skill to go in because the game is really hard. Um, I, I can say that better than anyone. I'm terrible at it. But like, <laughs> I understand that it's that it sometimes takes a while for the skill to sink in. Yeah, that. 
I love how consistent you sound on this because it, it reminds me when we had Tom Black on the show and he's a big guy on transfer and growth mindset and he, he basically admitted he's like there's no way to really measure transfer but with our growth mindset like maybe you're three out of ten reps right now and you're not very good at it yeah. but in a week maybe you'll be better in two weeks three weeks like who knows but you're not going to be very good right now but it doesn't mean I'm going to yell at you because you're you're learning and you know if I light you up right now that doesn't really encourage learning right so it just sounds cool that you're aware of that and consistent and, and there are times to move on even though the athlete can't get it because they they understand what the task is right and then you can build from there the cool part about that josh is like that's that's tom black speaking about the national team like if i ask if i text steve marr right now and say hey what are you working on he's going to answer that question <laughs> he's going to have a real specific thing that he's working on to become a better volleyball player and that's one of the best volleyball players in the country that we've ever produced right so like i think i think it's amazing especially for coaches and young players to understand that the learning doesn't stop. So even though something hasn't sunk in yet, doesn't mean that you've you've stopped teaching it. It just means it takes time. And that process goes for their entire career. I know that I've, as a coach, I want to keep learning like that too. There's things like, like I've talked about, like I've changed my tune on, on things that I talked about on a podcast a year ago because I'm learning more about it and, and becoming a better coach. Man, this is this is so awesome, and I could go on and on, but I feel like as a listener, you know, we're we're getting up there in time. So either this has to be a two-parter, or, or we cut it there, and we'll have to have you on very very soon. But just to close it out, one thing we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just a funny story where people have now heard that you've coached at the highest level. You really think of the game in a very specific way, and you're using evidence to make decisions. But you know, you're not exempt that volleyball is a bit weird sometimes, and some funny or odd stuff happens along the way. So I was hoping you could share a, a cool experience before we let you go. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I will go back to a story where I, I started Niagara College. So this was four years ago. It was my um, – I had been at Mac for years and years, and I took a head coaching position at Niagara College, and it was our very first road trip. So we were going to play – we were driving. We were on a bus, both the men and the women. We were going to Windsor to play to play Windsor. We stopped at Western, played Western, and then we stopped in Windsor to play Windsor. So it's we're now like five hours from home. We finished the match at like 10 o'clock. We're rolling out of Windsor, going back to getting ready to go back to Niagara. It was my first ever road trip as a head coach, and uh, we there's like an on route on the way back home. It's just outside of Windsor. It's it's not even just outside of Windsor. It's like right in between Windsor and Chatham. And we stopped at the on route to get some food. The guys were hungry. Everyone like needed just a, a little bit of a break. But as we pull in to the on route the bus starts making this horrible noise and we kind of like drift into our parking spot. The bus driver puts it into park and he's like, I don't think this thing's moving again. And we're like, what? Oh, come on. Like we thought he was joking. And so we all go in to get our food and stuff and we come back out and he's like, no, I'm serious. Like this bus isn't moving again. We're stuck. <laughs> and it was like now like 1030 at night in between Chatham and Windsor. We're like four hours from home. The girls, it was a Sunday night, we had been a weekend, so the girls would all have class the next the next morning, some of them have tests at like 8.30 in the morning the next day. And we're like, what do you mean we're stuck? So we ended up, the men's, Nate Grunfeld was the men's coach, I was with the women, and we were stuck in that en route for four hours. We didn't leave, it might have been longer, we were stuck, I don't think, I don't think we left till like four in the morning. We didn't get back home to Niagara until like, I think it was eight, eight, nine o'clock in the morning that day. Um, so yeah, we spent 
a good, like some people were sleeping in the corner of the en route, some people were playing Pepper, some people had a deck of cards, but like the two teams basically took over the en route over the course of the middle of the night. And uh, yeah, that was my first ever road trip as a head coach, thinking like, <laughs> I have to take care of these athletes, I'm in charge, I'm failing. And yeah, it was a, it was a funny, it's a funny story now, but at the time it seemed pretty stressful. <laughs> I can only imagine the freakouts, right? Because they they have school, they need sleep, they have all this stuff. Welcome to the OCAA, and you're you're stranded in between <laughs> Windsor and Chatham right now. Oh, I'm calling my AD at like eleven o'clock at night, being like, "What should we do?" And I'm like, he's like, "Are you safe?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we're totally safe." And he's like, "You're fine. Deal with it. You're just gonna not get, but you're not, you're just not gonna get very much sleep." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, this has been great. Uh, I've had you kind of on my list for a while of people I should approach to get on the show, and you, you definitely exceeded my expectations, which wasn't easy because I have so much respect for you, and I feel like I've stolen so many ideas over the years and definitely added to the list over the course of this interview. So thanks for taking the time and sharing all that you did. Oh, thanks, Josh, and thank you for what you do as well. I think contributing a huge amount to the volleyball community, and we should all be listening to as many podcasts as we can that you're doing right now. Thank you. Yeah.